The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. We are going to venture on something really quite extraordinary here starting today. I want to invite you to join with me in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's open together. You can find the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's on page 553 of a Purak Bible. Uh, It's just after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So come with me there to the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, as you're doing so, let me tell you again that we're going to venture on something extraordinarily unique. And here's why. This sermon series of Ecclesiastes was suggested to me. I don't very often receive suggestions. It's normally, you know, try to uh, chart a path and all the rest, and that's fine. But this was suggested to me, and I agreed. I agreed quite quickly, and I actually have to be honest with you. When I agreed to do Ecclesiastes so quickly, I, I regretted it at first. I almost immediately regretted it. And here's why. I've been leaning into this book now for a while in preparation for the series, and uh, my reservations were confirmed very quickly when I read, like, professional biblical scholars say things like this. Unequivocally, Ecclesiastes is the most difficult book in the Bible to preach. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Another commentator observes with this metaphor that Ecclesiastes is like trying to wrestle an eight-tentacle squid. Octopus. After great effort, feeling like you finally have a grasp on it, you realize that this eight-tentacle octopus actually has a ninth tentacle that's wildly waving over and above your head, totally out of your control. Wonderful. Ecclesiastes. Well, more than just kind of the unnerving of a preacher, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually wonderful and challenging. Uh, Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. So here's what I want to say to you at the very beginning. Have patience with this book. It will challenge you deeply, as it has me. But in the process, we will be walking together on a path that actually most people choose to avoid. But if we stay on it, God will definitely bless us with his word. So uh, with that as a qualification at the beginning, let me pray and ask God's blessing uh, and help because we need it and I need it this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come now to your word thankful that you are a God who speaks to us in the scriptures. We do not have to wonder what your will is, Lord. We don't have to guess at what might please you, for you reveal it to us in your holy word. And so, as we come now to Ecclesiastes, Lord, we pray, lead us into the green pastures of your word and cause us to lie down besides the rivers of its comfort, that we might be challenged, that we might grow, that we might be a more sincere group of disciples of Jesus. So come now, Lord, and bless your word to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 and the first three verses. This is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. For what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, So we're going to keep our Bible here. We're going to be doing something of an introduction to Ecclesiastes this morning. That's why we're sticking with just a few verses. We're going to be doing a little bit of uh, uh, nimble flipping in the book, so just be prepared. If you've got your copy, keep it open of God's Word as we make our way around here. The book of Ecclesiastes is categorized in a group of books in the Bible called Wisdom Literature. Wisdom Literature is what they're grouped as. Some of them were more familiar than others, but this includes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Solomon. Now, some of those books we're more familiar with than others. Uh, we really love the books, especially of Psalms and Proverbs. And the reason why we love these books, especially categorized wisdom literature books, the reason why we love them so much is because the wisdom literature books are not so much directed to the nation of Israel as a whole, so much as individual Israelites. So they're immediately relevant for you as a person because they're directed to individuals and their individual lives. That's why I think we're so inclined towards the Psalms as it helps us to have words to pray or, or feel expressions of emotions that we have difficulty putting words to, you find in the book of Psalms the expression of the soul, and we love it. In the Proverbs, they're, they're filled with individual bits of wisdom that we love and we appreciate, and it helps us so much. But Ecclesiastes is just different. Now, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us, for training in righteousness. All of the Bible is inspired by God and profitable for us. But I think that there are plenty of people who are totally content to say, sure, all Scripture is inspired by God, but I like to stay in the parts that I like and I'm most familiar with and make me feel good and comfortable, but the other ones, I don't want to go there. Uh, Some have described the book of Ecclesiastes as that crazy neighbor that you have, that you know is there, but you really don't know anything about them. But you're not inclined to go knock on the door and get to know them. They're just there. You're not inclined to have a relationship with them. Here's why the book of Ecclesiastes is so unique. The book of Ecclesiastes requires almost zero prior biblical knowledge to approach it and benefit from it. The book of Ecclesiastes makes almost zero reference to anything outside of it. So when we think of the Old Testament, we think of major events that happen in the course of the Old Testament. We think about Abraham and the nation of Israel and going into Egypt under slavery and being delivered out in the Exodus. And we think of all these major events. The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't talk about any of that. It doesn't make reference or inference to any of it. You need no prior biblical knowledge to come to the book of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't talk about the temple. It doesn't talk about the priesthood. It doesn't talk about anything like that. Instead, the book of Ecclesiastes is concerned with our common humanity as people. And what that means is the book of Ecclesiastes is inspired by God and profitable for us, not in the way it teaches us about God. Because actually, God is very much not a primary point of emphasis in this book. A primary point of emphasis in Ecclesiastes is you, the individual. And that is what John Calvin, the great reformer, called the aspect of double knowledge. 
that all true knowledge is based on two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And you might say, well, I know myself pretty well. But the Bible actually deconstructs our knowledge of ourselves and our human experience to say that one of the ways that God leads us to learn more about Him is by learning the truth about ourselves. God, through His Word, shows us what we were really made for so that we can see the ways in which we need to become who we were to be made. We come to the conclusion that what has become of us can only be redeemed by looking to the Lord. But in order to do that, we have to take a hard look at ourselves. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. And it takes some time to navigate and to adjust to a book like Ecclesiastes. It would be like driving on the other side of the road. I don't know if anybody has ever traveled where you drive on a different side of the road, but it takes some adjustment. It takes some getting used to. Mackenzie and I, we traveled to Scotland, and after a long plane ride, no sleep, it's raining outside, and I have to navigate the other side of the road being exhausted. It's tough, right? And it takes a little bit of time to get used to. When everybody's coming at you from the opposite direction, you got to look at a different mirror and all the rest, it can be scary. You think, I don't ever want to do this. That's why I had that reservation at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like learning to drive on the other side of the road. It's not simple. Very much like when we learn a new language, right? We teach children to speak English. We grow excited for a moment. They're, they're eager with their progress. And then we tell them, oh, by the way, there are exceptions to our grammar rules. I see you smiling, teacher, right? There are exceptions to the rules. The day come when the teacher tells us that there are exceptions to the rules we memorized. I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y. But then words like neighbor and way come in, and we're left saying, that doesn't make any sense. This, this breaks the rule. Proverbs, Proverbs keeps the rules. Ecclesiastes breaks the rules. You can read the book of Proverbs and you come to this conclusion, do good and good will happen to you. And we say, I like that. And then the book of Ecclesiastes comes in and says, you can do all the good you want and sometimes evil things still happen to you. What then? So what I want to do is I want to give us Four words here in these first three verses that will orient and introduce us to the book of Ecclesiastes generally as we prepare to make our way in the journey through Ecclesiastes together. So four words or phrases that prepare us to get into this book. And the first word is the preacher. Now when you see that sermon title, listening to the preacher, that's not me. It's the author of this book. Uh, I'll just say a brief word about this because I put an insert in your bulletin and I subtitled it more information than you wanted about a question that you didn't ask. So if you want to pursue that, that's there. Uh, there is no direct attribution of authorship in Ecclesiastes uh, and it's almost an intentional veiling. The author just uses the designation, the preacher. Verse one, the words of the preacher. And there's a footnote in your ESV text that explained that it's the Hebrew word koheleth which is just a veiled Hebrew word of somebody that gathers a congregation and then speaks to them. There is no individual who takes claim of authorship of Ecclesiastes. It's usually assumed that it's Solomon. And if you grew up assuming that, you would be in a stream of just about everybody else who assumes that as well. But the text of Ecclesiastes doesn't say that Solomon wrote this book, so we'll just be using the designation, the preacher, which is what the ESV does. And I think that that's helpful because... The book of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, you don't need to know who I am as I speak to you. You just need to listen to what I'm saying. Don't worry about 
who I am. Listen to what I am saying. And as the preacher speaks, you can think of the book of Ecclesiastes as an extended sermon or presentation where there are oftentimes frequent changes of subject and things that seem in apparent conflict that make you say, wait, what'd he say? You probably do that listening to me all the time, right? Wait, what? But Ecclesiastes is filled with these things on purpose to illustrate the fact that life is oftentimes filled with unresolved tensions that don't make immediate sense to us, that cause us to scratch our heads and say, what? And in that way, it's very honest about real life. So the way the book of Ecclesiastes is structured is the preacher has a text, and his text is verse 2. And verse 2, if you like, is the biblical text that then the preacher goes on to expound on through 10 chapters. He spends chapters 1 through 10 explaining this statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Spending 10 chapters in explanation and then chapters 11 and 12 in application. So what? And in this way, the preacher is a sage counselor speaking to us in ways so direct, so raw, often leaving us uncomfortable. For example, look at chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17, the preacher says, So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You say, that, that's shocking that something like that would be in the Bible. Hating life? Come again into chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15 says, the preacher, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Look also at chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14, the preacher says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Do you see what he says? It's the traditional bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people. And he seems to say, that's just the way it is. And you say, but it shouldn't be like that, right? It's wrong. And, and in this way, the, the preacher is kind of nagging at these aspects of life that cause us discomfort in which we are called to ponder the nuances and complexities of life. The preacher preaches to us here. The second word, the first word is preacher. The second word is, is the most famous word in the whole book. And it's that word still from verse 2 that comes five times in one verse. Vanity. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Uh, you may be familiar with that from a different translation. You think of maybe a different word. But this is the Hebrew word hevel. It comes up 38 times in 12 chapters. It's his main thesis. So when I said that chapter 2 is like, or verse 2 is like his text, he is expounding this thing called vanity and our life. The basic meaning of this word, Havel, translated as vanity in the ESV, it's like breath. 
It's much like breath, which is often used and translated as wind. And what it's doing is it carries this metaphor of like the vapor of our hot breath on a cold morning. And the preacher says your life is like that breath that you breathe out. It's like a mist, right? It's there and then it's gone. Just passes away. It comes, you see it, it goes away. The point of vanity is to stress the temporary, transient, fleeting nature of life. Almost as if it was never even there in the first place. But in Ecclesiastes, there is this sense in which the word is used to describe how our lives are like vanity in light of the fact that life doesn't oftentimes work the way you want it to and doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. In light of the fact that we face great struggles, the vanity of life in this sense means that life is often incomprehensible, not just in the sense that it is hard to understand, but that it cannot be understood. And so the preacher asks the question, does it have any meaning then in light of the fact that it's vanity? What the preacher is doing is that he is getting to a view of life that says that life is worthless, life is meaningless. It's all vanity, futile, purposeless, utterly meaningless, false and empty. And what he does is he takes that view of life and then asks, is that true? He is engaging this view of the world that actually lots of people have, don't they? Plenty of people think that life is just meaningless, worthless. Do people believe this? Of course they do. It's the worldview called nihilism, that nothing actually matters. And it's been prevalent all throughout human history. Listen to the words of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Macbeth, who says this, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Life is just a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. In the Elizabethan age, they thought that. But what about your life? What about the music of your generation? Previous decades, musicians have put their best foot forward with this, like Petula Clark. You wander around on your own little cloud, and you don't see the why or the wherefore. So what do you do? Well, don't sleep in the subway, darling. Don't stand in the pouring rain. And you say, well, what does that mean? And Bob Dylan says, well, it's blowing in the wind. What? Like, people are fascinated with trying to explain the purpose of life and then say, it doesn't actually have a purpose. So let's just celebrate it. Now, is that compelling for you as a Christian believer, this idea that, just, you know, it's just worthless and meaningless after all? Of course not. Because the point of the book of Ecclesiastes is to say, life is meaningless without God. Life is utterly meaningless without God. The preacher is addressing this general public view of the world that is limited by only a horizontal horizon that does not think of God at all. And the preacher is engaging this worldview on their own ground and is trying to convict on the thought of the inherent vanity of life without God. And in that way, he is defending a worldview that says God matters by critiquing the worldview that says, no, life doesn't matter, neither does God. Now that's interesting. 
It's very interesting because the preacher is saying, look, you can chase that road or you can chase that road and let me tell you, I've done it too. Let me tell you what's at the end of that road. A dead end. It's a dead end. But still, let's talk about the process. Let's talk about the journey. There are plenty of roads that you can go down, but only one's going to lead to life. Can I tell you about it? He's engaging the conversation that way. It emphasizes the fact that this present world overpromises and underdelivers, and there is a bigger truth to live by. And that's shocking because in the book of Ecclesiastes, life is evaluated almost exclusively on a horizontal plane. There's almost no reference to God and God's involvement in our life and in this way, which is why it is painfully honest. As real citizens of the world, the preacher feels deeply the futility of life and its pains, its disappointments, its injustices, mourns at the passing of youth and the universality of death, all the while preparing us for the final invitation that comes at the very, very end of chapter 12 and says, now do you want to consider your maker? After I have shown you that every road is a dead end except one. So, verse 3 is the main question of the book. Verse 3 is the subject matter. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That question will be asked three more times. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5. And in that question, what is it all worth? What is it all for at the end? In that question, there are two key thoughts that are the next two key things for us to approach Ecclesiastes with. And the first one is this idea of life under the sun. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun is a very important key phrase in Ecclesiastes. It comes about 29 times. There's a lot of repetition in this book, as we'll see together. Life under the sun is a reference to life on earth. Life on earth that is held in contrast over against the heavenly realm. So there is life in the heavenly realm and life under the sun. Life under the sun is the reference to the stuff of this earth. The totality of human experience and the view of life exclusively horizontal. A true assessment of the world apart from the light of God's redeeming love. And the description of life under the sun is a life apart from God a life east of Eden. It's as if the preacher knows what life could have been like. But now we're here. And he rages against this notion of why is life this way? But he knows that it's because he lives east of Eden in a fallen world with the full weight of the fall. It gives us, again, this uncomfortable reminder of the difficulties of life. And what you're tempted to, to say, and probably what you're at right now, just intellectually and emotionally, you say, you know, I've got enough difficulties. I don't want to come to church and hear about more. I come to church to be encouraged. I come to church to be uplifted and strengthened and all the rest. But this is why this is so important. Because you as a Christian believer need to be equipped to deal with the realities of life, not stick your face in the sand and try to ignore everything. Because not only is oftentimes your life difficult, but there are people around you who are asking all these same questions but don't have the background that you maybe have to know where the source of your answers are. This matters. It engages a view of God that people have all over the place. 
that yeah, sure, God, maybe he exists, but he's up there and he doesn't care. I've got my problems here. And I've got to figure out my own problems, and that's what my life is for. Just pressing on, doing what I've got to do, day by day, do my grind, it's up to me. People have that worldview like crazy. Where God is never brought in as a solution whatsoever, and that's why Ecclesiastes engages the troubles of life and never brings God in as the answer. For example, chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 and 2 says this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is... So is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Now, what he's saying there is, look, the same stuff happens to people regardless of their faith commitments. So what does a faith commitment matter anyway? It's going to rain on you. The tornado's going to come, or whatever the case might be. It makes you want to say, no, no, that's not the answer. That's not right. It's not just vanity. It, doesn't, it does matter in the end. And that feeling that you're going to have all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is exactly the feeling that the preacher wants you to have. And it can be exhausting, but still we press on because it's a realistic portrayal of a world that suffers under the curse. The book of Ecclesiastes forces us to ask the questions that the book of Job makes us feel but then we don't voice, right? The book of Job presents us with confounding realities. Why do bad things happen to good people? The book of Ecclesiastes says, yeah, that happens, doesn't it? What do you say about it? Under the sun, the last phrase, still in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? This final word is gain or profit. This is a commercial ter terminology referring to surplus or gain, but it has a broader meaning in Ecclesiastes. It's often used when comparing two things and then suggesting that one has an advantage over the other, like this gains over that. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, the preacher says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. So he's comparing things. He's asking in chapter 1, verse 3, what... What gain is there at the end of the day from all of this? What is the end result of, of life? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer comes in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, when he says this, chapter 2, 10 and 11, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, this idea of nothing to be gained is a primary point of argument, but he does speak of the fact that there is no profit, there is no gain, but there is a reward. 
There is a process. This refers to the fact that one can expect a world where our activities and our desires don't bring us what we want. There is no gain, but there is a reward. If you want a metaphor, it's like the Ecclesiastes is saying, let's go on a road trip. We're never going to get there, ever. But along the way, we'll learn some lessons. You say, I don't know. I don't like that kind of road trip. I like to go where I'm headed. But Ecclesiastes is saying, no, no, no. People think at the end of the day, it's not worth it. There is no destination. Engaging that view of the world, saying, but what can we learn along the way? What this provides for us is help for engaging the world that you live in. You understand this, don't you? That the religious climate of the West is crippling. You've seen that, haven't you? Like you're not unaware of that. Christianity is not the predominant worldview in the world in which you live. So how will you interact with the world that you live in? Well, what we live in is a day and age that the researchers are telling us that people aren't atheists. They're not. They're not even agnostics, right? What's the new category? None. They say, I have religious affiliation. None. Meaning, I just don't care. I'm totally apathetic. It doesn't matter to me whatsoever. But the book of Ecclesiastes says, no, we have a shared humanity. We have a shared human experience. I bleed and I sweat. You bleed and you sweat. You struggle. I struggle. What do we make of our lives? Ecclesiastes equips us to engage those who are religious nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E, who think that life is just meaningless comes alongside them and says, you know what, I agree with you. Life is hard. Life is often unfair. I can't explain it. But can we talk about it? Can we think about it together? The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't provide you bumper sticker theology. So it's not just a, not a lot of nice things. It says, does life have any point? And if so, what is the point? Are we here by chance? And if we're not, what is the point of why we're here? Now, Here's the end of the matter for why I think I care so much about this for this congregation and for us. Now, you might ask those questions, and you might not. You might be someone who says, you know what, I have a settled piece about the answers to those questions. What is life for? What's it about? Where is it headed? Why does it matter? You might say, I'm good on the answers to those questions. But lots of people around you aren't. Your neighbors your coworkers, your own family might have no settled answer to those questions. Are you equipped to speak about it with them? Or maybe you're somebody who actually you yourself doesn't have a settled piece about the answers to these questions. Where even for as much as you have a faith commitment and a public testimony of faith in Jesus, you're not sure how deep those roots go so that when the storm comes, your tree's going to get blown over. What then for you? The book of Ecclesiastes engages all of us. One final thought here for you is that the book of Ecclesiastes is never quoted in the New Testament. That's, an, again, what makes it unique. But there is probably an intentional reference. And it's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul is reflecting on the fact that this world is a fallen place. 
And he uses this terminology. He says, the creation was subjected to futility. And when he uses the word futility, the Greek translation of the Hebrew is the exact same word that the preacher uses when he says vanity. Paul says, this creation is subject to vanity. It seems like life doesn't have any meaning. It's the same biblical word from Ecclesiastes. And here's the point. The vanity and transience of your life is confronted by God's eternity. Humanity is like a parched existence living in a dying world that is dying of thirst. And Ecclesiastes lives in that parched world. And Jesus has come into that parched world that is dying of thirst. And he says what? I have living water to give you that will satisfy you and you'll never thirst again. Do you remember what the woman in John 4 said? Lord, give me that water because I'm dying of thirst. We live in a world that is dying of thirst. People have unsettled answers to the questions that they're afraid to ask. And in Jesus Christ, we find that life is not meaningless, but it is utterly meaningful. And we must make the connection. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from our vanity that the preacher in Ecclesiastes wrestles with. Jesus is born under the sun, lives a life of perfect obedience under the sun, suffered and died under the sun, and by his resurrection makes your toil not meaningless but meaningful and your life matter. Without Jesus, everything is vanity and every road is a dead end. But with Jesus, it becomes not only possible but a reality that your life can be transformed and one day into eternal life in the presence of God. So, we're going to walk this road together. Uh, If you're courageous enough to follow me and if I have sufficient courage to lead us. Which is why we need God's help. But, Ecclesiastes will be as a measuring stick that we can hold next to our life. And may the Lord bless His word to us as we listen to the wisdom of the preacher. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we come now to you thanking you for the Scriptures, uh, praising you because you reveal yourself in ways uh, that we find uh, surprising, ways that we're unprepared oftentimes to, to find. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that as we consider a world that thinks of life as purposeless, Lord, that we would live out the purpose that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you might bless us to do that as we shine as lights in a dark world. Lord, bless that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.